this morning as we pick that uh, study up, Acts chapter 13. So I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles there. While you're doing that, <clears throat> this uh, chapter got me thinking back on my honeymoon, the honeymoon Amy and I took right after we got married. We were able to go to Maui for a few days, which was really awesome. Uh, any Maui fans out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any Maui dreamers out there? Yeah, maybe when all the masks and the passports go away, right? Okay, whatever. Uh, we can dream. We can dream. Uh, if you've been to Maui or really uh, any of the Hawaiian islands, I mean, they're all volcanic, so there's these huge volcanoes. The big one on, on Maui is called Haleakala. I think I pronounced that correctly. And so one of the cool things to do is to go up there and watch the sunrise. 10,000-foot mountain. It's almost as big as Mount Hood. It's a big mountain. And you go up there and you watch the sunrise. Now, the, the only trouble if you want to... So we decided, hey, let's, let's go do that. The only trouble if you want to do that is the sunrise is early. Have you noticed? <laughs> Especially in the summertime. And if you've ever driven around the islands, it's never like a straight shot from any point A to any point B. It just takes a while to get around. And we were staying on the clear other side of the island, so it was going to take us like a couple hours. You can drive up there, but, but it takes us a couple hours to get from where we were staying up there. So we were realizing, man, we're going to have to get up at, I don't even remember, it was like 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning or something to get in the car that we had to go up there. And fortunately, on the way out, some really nice hotel clerk was in the lobby, and they're like, oh, you must be going up to Haleakala to watch the sunrise unspoken, because no other idiot would be up at this time of morning, right? And we're like, yeah, how can you tell? And like, because you look like tourists, and you have thin shirts on and shorts, and you got to understand you're at 10,000 feet, and it's really cold up there. Here's some extra blankets. Trust me, you'll want them. I don't know who that person was, but I am eternally grateful for them, because we did manage to get up. We got in the car. We drove all the way to the top. It's pitch black. We get out, and it's freezing, I'm in Hawaii. You're 10,000 feet above Hawaii, okay? It was literally probably in the 30s. I mean, it was pretty close to freezing, and it's pitch black, and there's all of these crazy tourists that are huddled up shivering because none of us brought ski jackets to Hawaii, right? And we're all bundled up, and thank God we have these blankets, and so we bundled up, and then we watched the sunrise, and it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. You couldn't even see the water. It was just all clouds, and then the mountain peaks of some of the islands, and then the sun just blazing up over all that. It was surreal. It was like you were in another world. Just beautiful, beautiful picture. It took some, it took some doing. <laughs> it took some sacrifice. It took me going back and falling asleep at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon because I was so tired. But it was worth it. If you want to see the view, you've got to go where the view is. There's a cost involved, but it's worth it. If you want to see the view, you've got to go where the view is. I think today's passage shows us that if you want to experience God, you've got to go where God is. You've got to go where he's moving to get in his wake. We're going to see this morning in this chapter is that we can be confident in God's presence when we stay on God's mission. So let's look at this together. This, is, this whole chapter is really two different episodes it's two stories. It's a tale of two victories, really, for the gospel. The first one is very short. The second one is much longer. So some of these place names are a little strange for me. I threw a map up here on the screen just to kind of locate things for us. Um, we're going to pick up the narrative with uh, a guy named Saul, later the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas. This is actually where Saul's name changes to Paul. And they're going to start way over there on the right-hand side of the map in a town called Antioch, in uh, a region at the time that was known as Syria, very close to where modern-day Syria is. There were a lot of towns in the Roman Empire named Antioch. They're going to end in a different Antioch, uh, but this is where they started. We pick up the narrative 
Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read through parts of this and kind of just move us through both stories, and then we're going to step back and compare them and contrast them, because there's some similarities and some striking differences, and there's things to learn in all of that. So as you read through these stories, kind of get the flow of them, and then see if you can detect some similarities and some differences. Acts 13.1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, uh, several of them are listed by name there, and then uh, verse 2, while they were worshiping the, Lord said, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So at this point, this church in Antioch is, is gathering purposefully to seek and hear from God. That's the idea of the prayer and the fasting. They're like, God, we want you to move in our midst. Help us get involved in what you are doing. They want to discern the Holy, and the Holy Spirit's will, and they discern his commissioning of Saul and Barnabas. And so these two guys, along with a traveling companion, go to the island of Cyprus, and they work their way across the island, eventually landing uh, on the west coast of the island in a city called Paphos, which at that time was sort of like the capital city of the whole island, which was a province of the Roman Empire at the time. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues, and they had John to assist them when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. Now here's where the story kind of slows down. They came across a certain magician, um, a, a miracle worker, a soothsayer of sorts, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil!' He had not yet read how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." This proconsul was the Roman governor, essentially, of the island. He was a big shot. He was Roman. He was not Jewish. He was clearly uh, clearly inquisitive. And so he sought to learn about God. And and here's this Jewish people that that the Roman Empire had conquered, and they had this unique insight into God. And so he grabs this Jewish guy who's like, yeah, I can tell you about God. And he's like, great, tell me. But it turns out he's a false prophet. He's just using his position to kind of get in the proconsul's hip pocket, so to speak, and become one of his lackeys. It's benefiting him socially, maybe even financially. He's got a good thing going. Along come Saul and Barnabas with the real gospel. And he's like, oh, wait a minute, that sounds a little different. And he's like, no, 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 don't listen to them, listen to me. Why? Because the gospel threatened his position. Keep that in mind, that's going to be a recurring theme. The gospel threatened his position. So Paul was not just being mean when he called him a son of the devil. The guy's name, Bar-Jesus, literally in Hebrew means son of the Savior. That's what the name means, son of the Savior. And he says, you're not the son of the Savior, you're the son of the devil. You're the son of the opponent. You're, you're breathing the words of the opponent because you're not proclaiming Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit miraculously strikes the guy temporarily blind and the proconsul becomes a disciple. By the way, just real quickly, um, note that the proconsul was pretty amazed at the miracle, but that's not why he believed in Christ. <laughs> It says he, he believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
what really floored him was not a supernatural miracle. It was the beauty of the gospel. You heard Lita and Sarah saying that earlier. The God who would love me, who would give himself for me. Are you seriously telling me that's how God works? Nobody believes that. Nobody teaches that. That's right, only the Bible. Only the Bible. He was stunned. He's like, I want that God. And he becomes a believer in Christ. At this point in the book of Acts, the narrative is shifting from the ministry of Peter and the Jerusalem church, which was focused on a largely Jewish audience, to the ministry of Paul and the Antioch church, to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the world over. The focus is going worldwide. God wants to redeem everybody. And notice also that in this particular account, the Holy Spirit is driving everything, isn't he? God's Spirit is super prominent in this story. Just 12 short verses, but he commissions them in verse 2, he sends them in verse 4, and he defends the gospel by supernaturally shutting down the opponents in verse 9. The Holy Spirit of God is all over this. Now we move to the second account, which is, is longer. It takes up the rest of the story. And so we'll read a couple key points and move through this one a little more quickly because I want us to see the flow of it. And as we go through this, think about the similarities and the differences with their journey on the island of Cyprus. Well, they eventually leave Cyprus, they head up to what is modern-day Turkey, and eventually land north in another town called Antioch, this time in a different province called Pisidia. And while they're there, they go to the Jewish synagogue, uh, verses 16 to 22, sort of recount all of this, and there they do the typical reading from the law and the prophets. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets were some of the later books. And so they would do a reading from the law and a reading from the prophets, because most people who would go to synagogue didn't have their own copies of the, the Bible that they could read at home, so they would go to synagogue, they would hear the readings, that's how they would learn Scripture. And so they turned to Paul, as was a custom back then, when there were traveling teachers, to say, do you have anything you want to teach us? And he's like, <laughs> throw that slow pitch softball over the middle of the plate. Sure, I'll take a whack at that. I got something to teach you. And so the, the bulk of this chapter is recording the Apostle Paul's sermon. In brief, it breaks down into three parts. First, uh, continuing verses 16 to 22, he starts where his hearers are at with the Old Testament law and the prophets. And he shows how the entire Old Testament is pointing to a coming Savior. The whole thing is pointing to a Savior. God is promising us a Savior. Like, you guys do realize that, right? You're the Old Testament people. You think it's God's word. Okay, where is this pointing? It's pointing to a Savior. Next, he spends the bulk of his time talking about who that Savior is, and it's Jesus. Look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 13. In verse 23, he says, Of this man's offspring, referring to the ancient King David, God promised to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised, or sorry, God sent a Savior, uh, Jesus, just as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all Israel, and when John had finished his course, he said, what do you suppose, that it's me? No, it's not me. Behold, the one coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. He quickly gets from where they start to the reality of God incarnate, Jesus Christ come to save us. He emphasizes how God's people, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, who knew all of God's promises, missed the fulfillment of God's promises when he sent Jesus, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. See, he's talking about their fellow Jewish heritage. We, as Jewish people, had God's law. We know God's promises. We should have been the first ones to see who Jesus was. Those of you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, 
because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Instead, they fulfilled those utterances by condemning him, the very Savior God sent. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. You see, he emphasizes how God's own people who knew the promises missed the promises because they were so sure they had it right. Their guard was down and they missed what God was doing. By rejecting God's salvation, then he describes that Jesus was killed and rose again from the dead. And this was also what the, the Old Testament proclaimed, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and who are now his witnesses to the people. We bring you the good news, the gospel. This is God's message for us. That what God has promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled by their children by raising Jesus, just as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he goes on and shows them from some more Old Testament quotes that this too, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of God's Savior was all foretold. And then he brings it home in verses 38 and 39 when he explains the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Drop down to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He explains that we can be forgiven from our sins because of what he did not because of our ability to faithfully do the right thing according to what God commands us. That is such an easy message to understand. It is such a difficult message to penetrate down to the heart because everything within us wants to to earn our salvation. We want to receive acceptance from God based on how we have performed. That's just human nature. The relationships are always conditional. That's always where we tend to naturally go. And it was this that astonished the proconsul in the early, earlier account. What God saves us because of what he does, not because of what we does, what, what we do, what we does. <laughs> I'm so astonished, I can't remember grammar. This is awesome. This is awesome. There's one more part to the sermon. It concludes with a warning. He started with the Old Testament. He explained the meaning of Jesus' death. He offered the promise of salvation. He concludes with a warning in verse 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, he's now quoting from the Old Testament, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if someone tells you. You know what he's saying? Hey guys, that hard-heartedness of the Jerusalem Jews who killed Jesus, none of us is immune to it either. Here's God's salvation. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The account ends with the response to this lengthy sermon that Paul preached in this synagogue. Many are initially drawn to the gospel such that the leaders of the synagogue start to see that they're losing their status. Does that sound familiar? The gospel is starting to threaten their influence. Uh, Verse 44, the next Sabbath, the whole city, uh, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but, but when the Jews saw the crowds, the Jews is referring to the leaders of the synagogue, not all the Jewish people there, but, but the, the leaders. 
Uh, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. These are the guys that a week earlier said, hey, you want to come talk? Why don't you come teach? Have the pulpit. And now they're like, get out of here. <laughs> You're just wrong. People don't listen to this guy. Paul says that by rejecting God's salvation, they're condemning themselves to eternal death. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Again, they're talking to the synagogue leaders. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God is always interested in worldwide salvation. And so men and women, rich people, poor people, people from all different ethnic backgrounds are starting to recognize this message is for us. God loves us and seeks to redeem us from our sins. That's his heart, that that message goes out everywhere. But the story isn't quite over. Verse 48, in desperation, the synagogue leaders don't just sit still for this. Uh, verse 50, sorry. When, uh, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them from their district, not just the city, but from the whole region. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And you see that on that map there. They kind of headed back over to the right and we'll pick up the rest of that narrative in terms of the map later. Here's what's interesting. That reads so quick. I don't know what exactly was going on there, but that was not pleasant. They executed a public smear campaign against these guys. It was like, hashtag Barnabas is a liar, right? I mean, seriously, if they had social media, they would have used it. They're doing everything they can to convince the people, these guys are liars, they're false prophets, they're bad men, don't listen to them, they're telling you lies, listen to us, not them. And they largely succeeded because all of the wealthy and the powerful people were lining up and saying, yeah, 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 don't listen to them. So all the people we normally trust are telling us not to listen to the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas get run out of town, not only town, but out of the whole region. They literally get run out of town. I don't know exactly how that felt. I just know it didn't feel good. <laughs> that shaking off the dust of their sandals, is, it's a protest. It's like, you're done with us. <laughs> We're done with you guys, especially toward those synagogue leaders. The narrative concludes, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Two different accounts. What do you notice about those? Some similarities and some differences? There's probably several. Let me start with a couple of differences that I think are instructive. First of all, there's a couple things that are very different about these accounts. In the first one, the Holy Spirit is like front and center stage. In the second one, he's not mentioned even once, despite the account being like three and a half times longer. Isn't that interesting? First one, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit this. Second one, it's like Paul, Barnabas, and they're getting kicked out of town. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's not even mentioned until this last little thing at the end that says after it was all over, they were still filled with the Spirit. It's interesting. It's like he's not there in the second one. What, what do we make of that? Second observation, another difference. In the first one, the opponents of the gospel are thwarted. 
this Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus, was literally struck temporarily blind as a judgment by God that silenced him and allowed the gospel to go forward. But in the second episode, the opponents of the gospel prevail. They win. The influential women and the powerful men are stirred up against those who are preaching the gospel and they succeed in shutting them down. Their rights to proclaim the gospel were stomped on by their local government. And the government won. Another difference. Speaking of those socially influential people, the socially influential person in the first account is the Roman proconsul. He's the governor. And he repents of his his sins and becomes a believer in Jesus. What a great story, right? If you're a Jesus person, you're like, that's awesome. This guy's a Roman. He's not even Jewish, but he recognizes Jesus and he embraces him and follows him. That's great. That's what we want to see. Second story, what happens? All the influential people are like, get out. Get out. You're bad people. It's not even just that we don't want to hear you. It's that we're disgusted by you. You're evil. You're wrong. You're bad. Leave. No chance to make a defense for yourself. Just summarily booted. Seems like two really, really different experiences. On the other hand, on the closer look, there's also some pretty remarkable similarities. Pretty remarkable similarities. Here's a couple. First, go back one. The Holy Spirit is actually active in both. He's just like front and center stage in the first story, and he's totally like behind the scenes. He's not even, he just exited stage left on the second one. But the interesting thing is he exited the stage. He didn't necessarily leave the building, which might strike us as weird at first. Where's the Holy Spirit coming down and striking these synagogue leaders with temporary blindness so that they shut up and the gospel can spread in Antioch? Why didn't God do that? I don't know, but he didn't. He didn't. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit was, was, wasn't there? Well, no. Verse 52 tells us the disciples, all of them, they were still filled with joy. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That echoes the language back from verse 9 when, the, when Paul says, filled with the Holy Spirit, hey, dude, you need to shut up, and then the Holy Spirit strikes the guy blind. He's still filled with the Holy Spirit throughout the entire second episode. There's just no evident miracle. So is he gone? No, he's not gone. He's still there. He's just a lot less visible. Secondly, another similarity. In both cases, the gospel spreads. As more and more people from diverse backgrounds embrace the salvation of God that can only be found in Christ. In both cases, lots of people come to faith in Jesus. Last, final similarity. (laughs) I think Paul and Barnabas themselves here are instructive by example. They do the same thing everywhere they go. They proclaim God's word in the power of God's spirit as God's people. That's what they're doing. If the Holy Spirit shows up and does something dramatic, they're like, cool, praise God. If he doesn't and they get tarred, feathered, humiliated, and run out of town on a rail, they're like, praise God. The circumstances the way it goes down doesn't seem to matter to them that much. They're going to keep doing what they're called to do, which is proclaim the gospel and the power of the Spirit as the people of God. They're they're convinced that they're on mission, and they're just going to stay on that mission. They're inviting new people into the faith, and they're strengthening the faith of existing believers. In other words, they're discipling people, as we say. No matter what. No matter what. So in reality... 
When I first read these, I'm like, this is almost like night and day different stories. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, maybe I'm assuming it's different because I'm wrong about what these stories are about. Maybe I think these are stories about how God changes people's circumstances here and now. And if I look at it that way, these are night and day different. But what if that's not what the stories are about at all? What if these are accounts? What if these are stories about God redeeming people by the power of his word and his spirit through his church? Suddenly I realized they're not so different after all. What can we take away from this? Man, probably lots of things. Let me suggest a couple things we can take away. A couple things we learn about God's word, God's spirit, God's people, and ultimately God's mission. See if, if you can find yourself in some of this. First of all, what do we learn about God's word? What do we learn about God's word? Well, in Acts 13, we certainly learn what God's word is, right? His word, in other words, his message. What is the good news of Jesus? This, this text could not have laid it out much more clearly than it does in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, I'm telling you your sins can be forgiven. Why? Because of Christ. And by Jesus, everyone who believes, that is, commits their life to him, banks on him, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You can be freed from all of your guilt and sin and reunited with God and the purpose that he has for your life, and it is through none of your efforts to follow God's rules. Because that never gets us there. It is because Christ followed them for us. He is, uh, accomplishes them for us, and then he invites us into his victory to share it with him. That's astounding. That's the message of God. Friends, have you repented and believed in the gospel that way? God today has a message for you as much as he does for me, as much as he does for all of these people who lived so long ago from our perspective. The message hasn't changed. Every single one of you is made in my image. Every single one of you, God says, is important to me. Every single one of you is cut off from me by your own sin. And my son has paid the penalty so that you can be reunited to me as daughters and sons. Come home. It's our deep desire that you experience that. If you have any questions about how to explore, to begin, or to deepen a relationship with Jesus, please contact us after the service throughout this week. We'd be delighted to talk with you. There's another lesson we learn, though, about the Word of God. And that is in this warning that was so prominent in the passage, the warning against hard hearts. You see, it's, it's the religious people who have the greatest likelihood of understanding the message that I just explained, but not actually banking on it, not having it actually move them, not having it change their lives. This sort of hard-heartedness to the gospel um, comes in many forms, and, and a lot of them are not evident on the surface. Lots of forms, just some examples to get us thinking. Overshaming can lead to hard-heartedness, overshaming. You know, when I feel the, the, the weight of my own failures enough that deep down inside I become convinced I'm just, I'm a, not a lovable person. That is a hard place to live, and many of us live there. This does not always, but it can lead to believing, like even if I say in my, in my head and, I, and with my words and I believe it, that Jesus loves me, God so loved the world that he gave his only son for me, deep down inside I may never really believe it because I just don't think I'm lovable. God may love other people, but not me. Not because of who I am. 
And that can keep us sort of shielded from the full love of God. We can back off from him because we don't trust him instead of letting his grace and his pursuing love pour over us and start to shape our experience and begin a lifelong process of transforming our character and building our confidence, not in ourselves, but in him and his love for us. When God says he loves you, he means it. Bank on it. Other completely different forms of hard-heartedness would be the things like legalism, rule following. This is when I'm following the rules so that my deep heart position, again, I know that the gospel is all grace and I will say that I'm saved by Jesus, not by my performance, but deep down inside my security comes from feeling like I am, I'm safe because I'm obedient. I've never killed anybody. I've never seriously cheated somebody. I've never left a spouse. I've never done any of these horrible things. I try to live a good Christian life. I try to tithe. I try to go to church. I try to do the right things. And deep down inside, my security comes from knowing that I'm following God, not so much from knowing that I am a broken sinner who's been redeemed by Christ. Legalism is subtle. (laughs) But when our, our confidence is anchored in our performance, not in his grace, it can give us a hard heart toward the gospel. Just one more of many. Hard-heartedness can also take the form of idolatry. Idolatry, idol worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, those were often literal statues, idols that people would worship and say, that's my God. But, but the Bible talks about idolatry as fundamentally an issue of the heart, not of the statue, right? It's what do you love the most? As Tim Keller so artfully put it uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, Right? And we love it more than we love God. Idolatry is when I believe in Jesus, but I pursue worldly things. That's what I'm really after. I'm after my security or my lifestyle or acceptance from other people or it could be any one of a million things. So that the gospel doesn't ever really move me. I believe it. I think it's great news, but it doesn't ever bring me to awestruck tears because that's not what's really resonating deep down in my heart. We can go on, but we get the point. Friends, to believe, to believe is to bank everything on Christ such that the gospel shapes our experience and increasingly defines our identity. When was the last time the grace of Jesus moved you to tears of joy and awe? Well, we learned some things about God's word. We also learned some things about God's spirit. We learned some interesting things about God's spirit. Namely, I'll just state, I think, the obvious lesson from this text. He's always working. He's not always prominent. He's always working. He's not always prominent. Sometimes he's center stage. Other times he's backstage. Sometimes he does exactly what you might expect him to or want him to or pray that he will. Other times he doesn't do anything seemingly or even exactly the opposite of what we expect, want, or ask. And those are rough times, aren't they? Those are rough times. Wait, God, what? How come you allowed this? How come you didn't change that? How come you... Let me ask you a question. How do you discern God's presence? This question is for for Christians. This is for followers of Jesus, okay? How do you discern God's presence? How, how How do you know that God is with you in any given moment. I was talking with someone recently, a professing believer in Jesus, who's going through just a hugely difficult situation in their life, colossal. And 
Uh, I talked to them in part of our conversation about Ephesians 1.19. We talked about that Easter Sunday morning. How the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is actually at work in our lives right now. There's, there's no problem or sin God is powerless to overcome, right? He can raise Jesus from the dead. He can help me grow. And, and I asked this person, like, do you believe that? Like that, that, that verse is a prayer that we would actually see God's power at work in us because we often don't. And the response this person gave me was, well, I believe he raised Jesus from the dead. I believe he has that kind of power. I just don't see it working in this situation at all. That's a problem. I said, yeah, but, but God is saying in the Bible that it is whether you perceive it or not. Can you believe that on the basis of what he said? How do you discern God's presence? So easy to expect, even if we know this is not true and we would say it, so easy to expect that when God shows up, life will go well, <laughs> according to my definition of life going well. He showed up on Cyprus. Hey, he shut down the opponent. Awesome. Oh, but in Antioch, man, he was comparatively silent. They got tarred, feathered, and kicked out of the region. Oh, but he was there. He was there, and Paul and Barnabas never doubted it. The text tells us that the Holy Spirit is there whether we sense his presence or not. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not disparaging any way that we might sense whether God may be there in a moment. I mean, if we pray for something and it comes about just the way we want, we say, praise God, he answered prayer. I feel like God is with me. Many times that's very true. Maybe we just have a subjective sense of his presence. I feel the spirit of God. It's moving to me. It's powerful to me in this moment. And many times that's a very legitimate and real thing. The only point is that that isn't the only way to discern whether God's spirit is there. He is there when he's visible to us, whatever that looks like. He is there when he's not. The question is, where is he? I think both of these scenes, we see where he is. He is about spreading the gospel to make disciples. That's what he is applying his power to. If we want to be where God's presence is, we've got to go where God's presence is going. If you want to see the view, you've got to go to where the view is. If I'm there, I can be confident God is with me no matter how things are going around me or what I'm feeling. Briefly, what do we learn about God's people? I think Paul and Barnabas are great illustrations, great models here by way of example because they're filled with joy, the last verse tells us, in God no matter how they fared personally. Man, that sounds so easy to say in church on a Sunday morning, but have you ever tried to live that way? <laughs> to really rejoice in all circumstances, good and bad, which is a theme throughout the Bible? <laughs> These guys were living it. Why? Because they stayed on mission. They stayed on mission. They knew God had called them to make disciples and they gave themselves to that, no matter how it was going. And as a result, they expressed joy at seeing him work. I was telling Lita and Sarah before the service, it was just so encouraging for me to hear their testimonies, just to see how God has used this church to work in the lives of these two ladies was a super huge encouragement to me. No matter what's going on, God is moving. He's making disciples. Here's how to know that God is with you. Devote yourself to his disciple-making mission. Get where God is. You can be confident God is with you because you're moving where he's moving. And that's the last thing I want to talk about this morning. What do we learn about God's mission? What is, what is the mission? What is victory? 
What's a good ending to these stories? Because, boy, the endings look real different at one level. They actually look pretty similar at another level. In the Bible, the book of Acts, victory is when God, is it when God shows up dramatically and, and orchestrates circumstances so the good prevails? Because he does that sometimes. But that's not it. This chapter is actually a tale of two victories, though they're very different in how they played out. They're victories for the disciple-making mission of Jesus. The first is a dramatic triumph. The second appears to be a discouraging defeat. But in both cases, the gospel spreads. New disciples are made and existing disciples are strengthened. And in the worldview of Scripture, that's victory. No matter what it costs the people of God in the process. I just want to wrap up with, with this. As we kind of emerge from this long COVID night as a church, we want to be sharper than ever focused on being a church of disciples of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus. We want to look at how we've done that well. We want to look at how we can do that better and come out of this time all tighter together, moving even more in that direction together than we have before. We're actually working on that even now, behind the scenes, so to speak. And that's what tonight's congregational meeting is all about. Uh, I'm going to be joined by a couple of our staff people and a couple of members of our elder team. And we're just going to kind of pull the curtains back a little bit for all of you so that you'll know some of the, the really intense conversations we've been having for the last three or four months or so, really asking one another and the Lord, what are our convictions about what you've called us to? And are we as leaders living those out before we tell anybody in the church to do it? And then we're about to shift into a process of saying, how are we doing overall as a church at equipping people to make disciples? And lastly, what can we do different and better as we move into next September, next school year, hopefully with a much wider, open, pandemic in the rearview mirror environment? But we don't want to wait till then for you to be a part of the process. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a member of this church, we want you to be a part of that process now. So could I encourage you please to come tonight? We'll be in this room. Uh, if you can't be here physically, at least jump on the live stream. Uh, in both cases, you'll get to hear us kind of share some of what's been going on in our hearts because we want you to know, we want to invite you into it. You'll also have opportunities to speak into that, ask some questions, make some comments. Uh, even online, you can use the chat feature to do that. We want this to be interactive. It's only the beginning of what I hope and pray and trust will be several months of ongoing conversation. But we want to do our best as a church to follow our Lord where we see in his word he's pointing us. And that's exciting to me. We can't do it with a few people in a room alone planning. We've got to do it as a whole body of brothers and sisters in Christ, locking arms, worshiping God, catching his vision together, and contributing to the whole. I want to ask the worship team to come back up here. And they're going to lead us as we close out the service by singing God's praises for what he's doing in the lives of individuals like Lita and Sarah, what he's planning to do in the lives of people all around our city, including new neighbors that have already, I believe, started moving in next door in some of the new housing here and other neighbors right around us that have been here for a while, what he's doing in us, what he's doing in our church. God, as we come before you, we come as a church, your church. <laughs> Flawed, far from perfect, because we're a church made up of sinners. But we are a church filled with your spirit, and that means there's great hope for us to be much more than we are on our own. So we pray, God, that you would fill us, that you would use us, that you would unite us as never before, 
especially coming out of a season that has been so divisive and continues to hold out the possibility of being divisive for so many people. I pray, Father God, that our unity would not come from that, the fact that we all think alike about every issue, but that we are so committed to pursuing you as a church family. God, in humility, receive our offering of ourselves. Lead us, show us, use us, and we pray that you'd receive our worship now for the praise that you're due. We pray in Christ's name, amen.